Joining me now, Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Uh, Bill, I was playing around with the ringer on the phone, and I was trying to turn it off, and I only just, I think, created more havoc. So if it rings in the background, just keep talking, and I'll try to mute myself. <laughs> okay, I'm, I, I'm good with that. And if you hear sirens or birds in the background, I'm out on my deck today. For some reason, my internet is not reaching my basement today, and I don't know why. So it's I'm telling you what, it's gremlins. It's gremlins. I know those aren't real things. So don't at me. uh, Those of you who are listening right now. Uh, So but there are spiritual forces at work, obviously trying to keep Bill English and I from declaring the good news of the gospel into all the world. So, Bill, share some good news this morning in the Twin Cities. Hey, you know, up here in the Twin Cities, we have a nonprofit uh, called Urban Ventures. And Urban Ventures uh, usually supports children and families in the near south Minneapolis area. Uh, but they were funded to the tune of over $800,000 by an anonymous donor and some others. And now they are starting to fund businesses that were hurt by the riots but were not burned down. So these are existing businesses that have survived the riots. And Urban Ventures is starting to shell out five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 to these small businesses to help them replenish um, uh, inventories or maybe buy new fixtures that were damaged during the riots or other things like that. And they're helping to revitalize the businesses in the Minneapolis area. And, you know, many applause and my hats are off to them for, for doing this. It's really good news. All right. So this is Urban Ventures. And if you guys want to check out the uh, the article about it, it's in the Star Tribune this morning. Um, we just want to we always just want to celebrate when you know, the the people are responding to do good and to make good things happen. Uh, and so just want to celebrate Urban Ventures this morning and what they are doing in the Twin Cities to, to rebuild, to, um, to help people get back on their feet. So that's just awesome. All right, Bill, let's, um, let's turn our attention to uh, the decision by the Supreme Court of the United States uh, that was issued in what we're calling the Bostick or Bostock case. Um, give us your give us your thoughts on this. It is employment law related, and so I thought a good topic for you and I uh, at BibleandBusiness.com. Yeah, sure. So quick on the context. This is Bostock versus Clayton County. That's in Georgia. Uh, they had three similar cases like this, and that's why the Supreme Court took the case. In two of the cases, in the second and sixth circuits, they held that an employer who fires an employee simply for being gay or transgendered, violates Title VII. And I'll get to Title VII in a minute. The 11th Circuit, which is Florida and Georgia and uh, one other state, held that Title VII does not prohibit employers from firing employees simply because they are gay or transgendered. And so the, the, uh, the lawsuit made its way to the Supreme Court. And uh, the majority held that an employer who fires an individual merely for being gay or transgendered violates Title VII. And I'm going to quote here from their opinion. It is unlawful for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against any individual because of their race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. I'm quoting there from Title VII. And Title VII, Carmen, as you remember, was passed, I want to say, in 1964, 65? Correct. Mm -hmm. Civil Rights Act, 1964. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, really, this whole case is pivoting on the meaning of the word sex. 
because in 1964 they said you could not discriminate against any individual based on their sex. And so does that word refer to biological gender or does it also refer to gender identity and or sexual orientation? And what the majority found, and this is a quote from their opinion, is that the straightforward application of Title VII's terms interpreted in accord with their ordinary public meaning at the time of their enactment resolves these cases. So what they're going to say is that even in 1964, that the word sex also referred to gender identity and sexual orientation. Uh, very quickly on the dissent, Justice Alito wrote uh, several scathing comments. Number one, there is only one word for what the court has done today, and that's legislation. The document that the court releases is in the form of a judicial opinion interpreting a statute but that is deceptive. Um, I'll just read one more quote here, Carmen. A more brazen abuse of our authority to interpret statutes is hard to recall, Justice Alito writes in his dissent. The court tries to convince readers that it is merely enforcing the terms of the statute, but that is preposterous. Many, this is, this is important, and this is really a, a key point for us to look at. Many will applaud today's decision because they agree on policy grounds with the court's updating of Title VII. But the question in these cases is not whether discrimination because of sexual orientation or, got to go to the next page, gender identity should be outlawed. The question is whether Congress did that in 1964. It indisputably did not. So there you have it. You have uh, the dissenting judges saying that the court basically made law and the majority opinion saying, no, the law as written in 1964 uh, outlawed uh, discriminating against people for uh, sexual orientation and gender identity issues. So I have read, I don't know, 50 or more um, reactions, responses, evaluations uh, of of the action taken by the Supreme Court. And I feel confident that, you know, that I can say this. This decision raises more questions than it answers. It creates more confusion than it resolves. And it will result in more um, more cases brought, you know, obviously they will all start out locally, but more cases that we're going to see um, rise through the courts and there will be a difference in terms of uh, how the different parts of the country rule on such things. And so this is certainly not the last conversation that the Supreme Court is going to have to have, um, not only about Title VII, but its intersection with uh, with RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, with um, with religious organizations and institutions, religious employers, um, related to whether or not they are bound by the same uh, by the same standards. I mean, I, I just this is um, well. I'll, I'll read. This might be um, hyperbole, although maybe it's not. This is an LGBTQ activist individual named Masha Gessen, um, who says in The New Yorker, the court's decision is by far the most consequential in the decades-long history of the American LGBTQ movement. Um, and so certainly those who are advocates of, uh, of a substitution of subjective gender identity for what we might call embodied sex, 
the distinction between that which is male and female created, uh, you know, by God intentionally in that way. Um, they certainly view this as uh, a, a tremendously significant shift in the understanding and then the application of the laws of this land. Everywhere the word sex appears uh, in terms of the statutes of the United States of America, this interpretation um, is is now going to be tested. I mean, I think that is uh, that is almost certainly fair to say. All right, Bill, you and I have to take a very brief break. Um, when we come back, do you want to continue talking about this or you want me to we want to talk about something else? Well, let's talk about this a little bit more. Okay. When we come back, we're going to continue this particular conversation with Bill English. You can find him at BibleandBusiness.com. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with Bill English from BibleandBusiness.com. Um, Bill, in relationship to the decision of the Supreme Court of the United States uh, in the Bostick case, which we, we will now learn to say in much the same way as we refer to the Obergefell case um, in 2015, which redefined the definition of marriage across the United States of America and the way we have learned to refer to Roe v. Wade. Um, I think that it is fair to say that this is the Roe v. Wade of religious liberty um, in, in terms of the threat. I'm going to just use that word, the threat that a decision of the Supreme Court brings to religious institutions, including churches. Am I over? Do you think I'm overstating things? No, I don't. And I and I think that this is a spiritual battle more than a legal battle. Uh, this is why Christians across this nation need to be praying for our country and praying for revival. Um, you know, when a country lives in sin, as we do, God sends, I'm Deuteronomy 27 now, God sends on it uh, rebuke, confusions, and disease. And is there anybody within the sound of my voice who doesn't believe our country is confused you see these kinds of rulings, and you go, and you read the logic, and, and then you just kind of look at yourself and say, this is confused logic. This is not the way logic normally works. That's because it's a spiritual battle more than it is a legal battle. We need to be praying for our country. Yeah, I think there's no question about that. I also... Um... I appreciate what Justice Alito uh, says in in absolutely pointing out that the role of the court is not to legislate. We have a legislature. That's their job. Um, And there are there are opportunities uh, in front of Congress right now to do what the court has now by fiat fiat done. But 45 times the Congress of the United States has declined to do what the court just did by fiat. And so I think that um, I think that that those of us who are concerned about the way the three branches of government are are designed and are supposed to relate to one another. There's cause for concern here just in terms of uh, of the of kind of the structural integrity of the branches of government and how they are supposed to relate to one another. And the Supreme Court is not supposed to be the legislative branch. Yeah, the separation of powers is very important. And. Uh, For 45 years, bills have been introduced into Congress to add sexual orientation and other types of descriptors to this list in Title VII, and they have never passed both houses. Now, presumably, 
in our system of government, the houses represent the will of the people. And there hasn't been enough of the will of the people to add these descriptors to Title VII. The court steps in and does it anyways. That is a violation of the separation of powers, uh, in my estimation. And I think even though I might agree with it on policy grounds from an employer perspective, how we got there is the wrong method. And, you know, process matters. When it comes to making laws, process matters. And we should have gone through the legislative branch. All right. um, Let's do uh, something uh, joyful here at the end of our conversation together today. Favorite Bible verse or passage or story or character? Uh, For me? Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to persistence and resilience, which is, and perseverance, which is what I think uh, God is asking the church to engage in today, I think of Joseph, how he was sold into slavery by his brothers, ripped away from his family, and then resold into slavery in Potiphar's house, and yet never loses his faith in God, and he depends on the Lord, ends up being number two ruler in Egypt, And when his brothers come down, he says, you know, God sent me ahead. It was his will that all this happened. We can look at adversity and and we can look at these various movements, Carmen, and we can say, you know, our country is just falling apart. Well, maybe so. But boy, the ministry opportunities are ripe. They are right in front of us. And our opportunity to give to other people and to minister to other people is outstanding and we ought to be taking advantage of it. We can grow the church in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of these kind of court rulings. You know, I love talking with you. I love the perspective that you bring. I love that you help, um, you know, you help us see what we're doing day to day in our vocations uh, from a biblical worldview. So, you know, thanks as always for joining us. It's, um, it's always, it's just, it's great fun. It's a privilege. Have a nice day on your deck. I, I plan to. <laughs> love it. I totally love it. All right. That's Bill English. You can find him at BibleAndBusiness.com. We'll be right back. <music> President Trump has signed an executive order on police reform. Both the Senate and the House have their proposals drafted. Uh, will anything become of it? The New York Times is asking the big question this morning, will the policing push actually go anywhere? Um, and so I do think that this is a, a conversation that we um, are are going to continue having in the culture. Next up, I've got Adam Davis. He is a former police officer. He's the co-author of On Spiritual Combat, 30 Missions um, for Victorious Warfare, and also a book called Behind the Badge, 365 Daily Devotions for Law Enforcement. Um, we're going to have what I hope will sound to you like a balanced, balanced conversation about the challenges and indeed the trauma that law enforcement agents face each and every day, um, and maybe how we as a country can just do better. All right, it's going to be a conversation between two Christians who are concerned about what's going on in the law and in the land. Adam Davis up next. Adam Davis up next. 